I'm Travis. I'm Sean. I'm Matt. I'm Kevin from Kevin's Comics. And, and this, this is, is Comics, Comics First. Hi, I'm Sean, and you're listening to another edition of the Comics First podcast. Uh, this podcast can be found all over the internet. iTunes, SoundCloud, Spreaker, Facebook, Google, Tumblr, Twitter, YouTube, ComicsFirst.com, everywhere on the internet, all the social media platforms you can find us there. Yeah, if you're looking for us, you'll find us. Now, we've got a really special episode for you guys today uh, because we have an amazing guest. We have the prolific Greg Rucka, who I am honored to have on board, who has written classics such as Queen and Country, Gotham Central, both of which you know he won Eisner's for, uh, his incredible work on Detective Comics with Batwoman, and the stuff we're largely going to talk about here, Lazarus and Black Magic. Hey, Greg, how's it going? It's going very well. That was very flattering of you. Thank you. Thank you for very joining nice, us. Nice intro. <laughs> I appreciate it. So before we get started, I just want to introduce the rest of our panel. So we'll go from the left of me onward. So uh, go ahead and introduce yourself. Hey everyone, uh, I'm Matt. You probably heard me before once. I was on the X-Men podcast on New Mutants specifically. But yeah, it's nice to be here. I'm really excited to talk about some great comics. I'm uh, Travis. I'm the editor-in-chief here at Comicsverse. Uh, really looking forward to this conversation. I'm a big fan of uh, a lot of Greg's work back on uh, No Man's Land and uh, Death and the Maidens in particular I was a big fan of. So I'm really looking forward to this chat as well. Oh, so it's you. Okay. <laughs> we found him. <laughs> <laughs> Yep, I'm the guy. <laughs> Kevin, Kevin Gutt. Go ahead. Yeah, and I'm uh, Kevin from uh, Kevin's Comics. Glad to be here first time. I'm excited right now. I'm hard as a rock. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a little more information than any one of us here needed, but thank you. Okay. So we're, we're going to start with Lazarus. Now, I'm a huge fan of Lazarus. Uh, I've been picking it up since it first launched, and it's my favorite book out right now. I, I look forward to it every week. And uh, I mean, it's a huge comic, and a ton of world building has gone into creating it. So um, can you just tell us a little bit from conception to print, how long were you working on the crafting of the story? It, that, that's an interesting, an interesting story, because it sort of came about, uh, it came about, because I had not, there was a fallow period from about 2009 to late 2012, 2013, where I wasn't doing a lot of work. I had uh, I'd stepped away from comics to pursue some other things. And none of those other things panned out. And I uh, uh, was dealing with some, uh, a whole bunch of just all the garbage that ensues from that. You know, there's emotional drama, there was family stuff, there was professional stuff that was going on. And I'd been trying to get a couple things going. One of them was Black Magic, actually. And Michael Lark and I had discussed uh, that project at length. And he was initially going to be the artist on it. And I can't remember exactly what I was doing. But you know how when you get into a foul, like, temper and you're there for a really long time, you start to look sort of subconsciously for things that will keep you there. Yeah. So I was listening to the news because it's guaranteed to depress you. <laughs> it's guaranteed to depress you and piss you off. And I um, I was listening to a lot of stuff, you know, because uh, we were still post-economic recovery or in the recovery. And I was looking at all the stuff surrounding the Occupy movement and the ratio of, you know, the 99% and the 1%. And I started doing some digging and was horrified and frank I, and and it came down to this i basically asked myself well if the trend keeps going there's not a one percent there's a point zero one percent and then that point zero one percent becomes point zero zero one and at some point there's going to be a handful of people who own it all they have all the money there's no money left and the rest of us are 
I hope I can swear on this. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, and that sort of gave, that was sort of the genesis. So then I ended, I was in Dallas on a book tour. Uh, it had a novel come out, and I had dinner with, with Michael. And I had had that opening scene in issue one I had in mind, which is the scene where Forever is killed by these three wastes who are raiding the house for food. And I sort of described the scene to him, and Black Magic, for a variety of reasons I won't go into, it had just stalled. We weren't getting any any forward motion on that. And Michael practically left. He was sitting across from me in this restaurant. It was me, Michael, and my literary agent. And uh, Michael, I mean, he practically leapt across the table. He was like, I, that, I want to draw that. <laughs> and I was like, okay. So I, uh, you know, I got home. And uh, basically, I, I called Eric Stevenson at Image. And I said, so uh, I have an idea. And he said, yeah, go ahead. And I was like, no, I can send you. He said, no, no, you lark fine. Go ahead, do it. <laughs> and I was like, no, I really want to explain. He said, no, 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 we'll publish it, do it. So I was like, <laughs> I, I like Image. Um, so I wrote, I, wrote, I wrote the first issue. I wrote a draft, right? I sent it to Michael. And when you're writing a draft like that, you know, you, you have to build out. So I knew what the story was, but I was having to sort of fill in why is it this way. So when you ask about world building, it's sort of a 50-50 process for me. Half of it is entirely driven by the needs of the story. What I'm writing at any given time will relate directly to what do I need to create? Oh, I'm going to do, we're going to be with the military throughout the poison art. I better have an idea of how the military is structured now, right? And then that'll lead to research and that'll lead to me Mostly spending a lot of time talking to uh, Eric Troutman, who, aside from being the designer on the book, the guy who does like those fabulous fake ads in the back, any technical readout screen or anything in Lazarus, Eric has designed all those. And he actually has designed the interface. Like if you sit him down, he'll say, no, it works like this. Like you just get it's a little piece of background, but he can tell you how it works. Right. Wow. And he, you know, he and I have written together. He edited me for a while on a couple of projects and he's a good friend. So, you know, he and I will sort of roll up our sleeves and go, well, how would this work? And, and so on. And I'll and, and we'll extrapolate from there. And then the other half of it is sort of sitting back and going, well, so if the world is only this many people and there's this much wealth and I know that there's this character and I know that she's being shot in this first issue and I know that she doesn't die. Why? Why doesn't she? I mean, there are certain questions that now right. must be answered. And those, you know, in seeking the answers to those questions, the, you build the world. And as you start laying down that foundation, it gets bigger and bigger. So, you know, I could, I could quite easily do nothing all day, but sit there and go, this is how this works in Lazarus. And this is what this is like in Lazarus. And this is what Paris is like right now. And so I, you know, I could do that. The reason I don't is if I did that, I wouldn't do anything else. And until we actually go to Paris, it doesn't really matter. Right. <laughs> is that confirmation that we're going to Paris? Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. I'm, I'm sitting down. We, we had, well, I mean, in the interest of full disclosure, we our floppy numbers are getting soft. And our floppy numbers, you know, that's what books do, right? There's a reason that Marvel is now going, hey, you know what? We need a new number one. And they do it every 12 months right. because yeah. number ones sell. And then there's an enormous drop off and then they cancel and resolicit a one. And so, you know, that's, that's attrition in the marketplace. That's, that's part of it. The other part of it is that 
I think we have a, a much larger readership than our floppy numbers alone would indicate. And I think those are people who read the trades. And there's a very good yep. reason to trade weight on Lazarus, I think. Yes. Lazarus is not the easiest book to follow. And when you are getting a five-part story in 22-page chunks, that's a long time to wait. You know, I, 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 I get it. I bring all this up by way of saying, so, you know, issue 21, which is the end of the fourth arc, the end of Poison, will be out December 30th. And then we're off for January. The trade is February. We're off for March. We're back in April. And we had a discussion as to whether or not we wanted to renumber, come back with a new number one, because 21 ends in a place that would totally justify it if you wanted to do that. And we went around and around on it. And, you know, if you'd asked me three weeks ago, I would have said, yeah, but that's probably what we're going to do. And then uh, I had another conversation with Eric Stevenson, who made a very compelling argument as to why not to do it. Why? And one of the things that he said is, that, and, and, and he's right, I think that aside from committing to the diminishing returns game, because it is a sense of gamesmanship, and I don't like that. I never have. I don't like, this is going to sound really, I don't know, maybe smug, but I don't want to play games with the audience. You know, I don't want to play games with the readers. I don't, I, I want to deliver a story. And if the story, you know, surprises them or misdirects them or tricks them, that's one thing. But I don't ever want to abuse that trust. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I don't, yeah. I, I don't want to, there is, there's an implicit contract when you put out a comic book. If you're reading the book as a fan of the book, you've committed to the book. So you're saying I'm in, I'm here, I'm in, I want, I want to be part of this, right? To so it feels a little bit like betraying that to say, well, you know how we said we're going to, we're just going to, we're going to do a new number one in the hopes that we'll get some more money in. Okay. Well, maybe we get more money in on the one, but then we're going to have drop off again. So it's that gonna, was part sorry. It's going to get on. more confusing because yeah. if you have another number one, you're going to be like, well, what's after issue 20? Well, that's, and, and then, and again, I think that that breaks the contract that we've made with our audience, right? Because yeah. if you are there from the beginning, now, now you're going to be like, great. So what am I on? I'm on volume three, issue four. You know, I mean, it's just, so there's that. And one of the other things Eric pointed out, and I thought it was, again, very valid, you know, uh, and he's very fond, of course, you know, because it's image. So he says, well, Kirkman ran it. Anytime right. he pulls Kirkman out <laughs> in an argument, it's wow. like, yeah, okay, but. <laughs> yeah, of course, we're Walking not, Dead is going not, to be the example. Not, yeah, I mean, it's just, we're not the Walking Dead. But I think one of the things that we're going to be able to do with the time off is sort of be able to re- reformat and and sort of make sort of everything in the next arc more cohesive so that for instance the next five covers will actually look related right that there will be not only the logo but you'll see okay this is part of the same arc making that easier for retailers making that easier for readers and then i think the other thing that we really have to do and that i i've always been bad at is i think we've got to work better with 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 retailers you know these it's, it's it's a big ask for most stores to buy you know this is this is a book that is not a guaranteed sale mm -hmm. if i ordered 10 and i only sold six i'm left with four and that's loss you know that that the bottom line counts so being able to go and provide retailers with the ammunition they need and to say look we, we, we're going to back your play we're not going to play games with you either the issues will be there when we say they're going to be there and that has been a problem with lazarus uh, and it's something that we are actively going to address following the end of poison right that's part of it the other thing is to say and here are ways you can sell the book because i think as i said i don't think it's an easy book and i don't think it's an easy book for uh 
they, there are plenty of retailers out there who get it and know how to sell it. But I think there are other retailers who have no idea how to bring readers to the book at all. Yep. So if we can if we can do that, that'll help. So I say all that by way of saying <laughs> <laughs> that um, when we had thought we were going to do a new number one, I was looking at I was going to have to alter the story that I was going to tell. Right. Because if you write a number one, a number one is a very specific kind of issue. It Absolutely. has to serve a very specific purpose. Mm -hmm. And now that I'm not writing a one and that we've committed, no, we're going forward. This is going to be issue 22. But Michael and I had some other conversations. I was like, well, then I can't do the thing I wanted to do in 22. So how do I make it work? And so on. So when you ask, are we going to Paris? The answer is maybe. <laughs> <laughs> you we're, definitely, we're definitely going to be in Europe. We're definitely going okay. to be going to Europe nice. and we're going to have the fifth arc is called Cull, and you're going to see some Lazarus killing Lazarus in this one. Oh, it, it's, it, 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 the world is, is things are starting to boil. So, Oh, nice. That's exciting. That's yeah. really exciting. I really like what you were saying earlier about how going back to renumbering with the number one issues after a certain story arc uh, almost feels like betraying an audience. I, I know me personally in this day and age with like reboot culture in Hollywood, you know, you're getting a new Spider-Man origin movie every three or four years, it feels like. And, yeah. and I feel like when I see the same sort of thing happening in comics, my first instinct picking up that number one is like, okay, so what was going wrong that they needed to reboot and start back over with the number one uh, titling? Whether or not that actually has anything to do with with the reasons that they started with the number one, or if it's just to attract a new audience, bring in more sales. There's always like a sort of uh, distrust from me going into that number one, going like, okay, well, this is like something entirely new. Like if I liked the previous issues numbering, then I might not really want to go into that. And I think that, you know, what you're saying is very true about the diminishing returns. I think that you are going to see some of your audience lost whenever they get that new numbering. Yeah. And I think I was reading some stuff in the last couple of weeks about uh, the new flurry of number ones. And I saw more than one review and, and I use that word cautiously, but, but I don't have a better one. Maybe write up, maybe, you know, and, and I saw more than one person asking, I don't understand why this is a new number one. Yeah, this is a continuation of a previous story and so on. And that that I think says everything you need to know, yep. you know, right there. So and I do, you know, I've tried to work professionally with a couple of principles. The first is that the audience is smarter than I am. Never talk down to your audience. Yeah. Um, the second that, you you know, you feel condescended to what's the first thing you do? You say, screw you guys. I'm out of here. You know, I, I get I get treated like this every day. I don't need to spend my money for the privilege. <laughs> right. You know? So that's that's part of it. And I do think, like I said, that there is we've entered into a contract. You you hand over your money for the book and the promise is I give you money and in return I get entertainment. And maybe in that entertainment I also get something else. I get yeah. you know, maybe I get things to think about, maybe I get something I can carry with me, maybe I get emotional catharsis or whatnot, but there's a contract there. I, I, you know, we say we're going to provide. And I take that very seriously. I think we have to take it seriously as creators and in particular as, as creators who own their own material because we don't have a safety net of going, well, it's Batman. Right, right. And everybody loves Batman. Yeah. You know, I mean, you really, really have to piss a lot of people off before numbers are going to drop on Batman. You know, but we piss people off. It's going to show. You know, we can't afford to do that. And on Lazarus and also on Black Magic, we work very hard to make sure, you know, the three ninety nine, the three fifty you're spending on that book, every page 
that you're getting is a page that we have curated. You know, that's a page that we picked and we put in there. And so, uh, you know, you got you got to respect your audience because otherwise, you know, otherwise I might as well just be writing this stuff and sticking it in a drawer, you know? Yeah. And and my ego won't permit that. So <laughs> <laughs> I was really interested by you were saying about the uh, the audience trust and the new number ones because I know when Marvel recently relaunched, one of the biggest things is that we saw a lot of number one issues, but not a lot of creators I trusted. So I was not going to pick up those number one issues. And that's one of the things I do like about Image, where when Lazarus first came up, the first thing you saw, Greg Rocca, Michael Art. It's like, all right, I love their run on Punisher. Sign me up. Like, yeah. I have to have like a relationship being like, all right, I know these creators are con- going to consistently provide great story, great art, and I'm going to be entertained for the long run. And that needs to be worth it. And that's a big problem where if I see a number one, I'm like, I don't know this guy. I'm not going to risk $4 where I could put it on another book with a creator that I do like. Right. And also, I think it's another big ask when it's one thing if you say, look, I, I, I love Spider-Man, all things Spider-Man. You can put people I don't know on Spider-Man. It's not going to happen, for instance, but let's just say. And the presence of Spider-Man there may buy your willingness to, to sample. Right. But we're talking about, you know, who the hell's Rowan Black? Nobody's ever <laughs> heard of Rowan Black. You know, it's Forever Carlisle. What sort of dumbass name is that? You know, the book's called Lazarus. Is it is it is it is it, is it yeah. a treatise on New Testament resurrection? What is it? So, yeah, actually, I, I get it. That kind of brings up something that I, I wanted to ask you about, because I've noticed to call back to something you had said previously about packing more into a comic than just entertainment. Uh, I see a lot of uh, common themes between uh, Lazarus and some of your other work, like uh, Death and the Maidens and No Man's Land, the sort of dystopian feeling of No Man's Land. I feel like is definitely very, very heavily throughout Lazarus. I mean, they're both obviously very dystopian in nature. And then this whole idea of regeneration, of rebirth, of resurrection. So I was just wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your feelings as to uh, the whole genre of dystopia and what you're, uh, you know, trying to accomplish with within that genre in Lazarus. That's a really interesting question. And that was a relationship that I haven't, I think, consciously drawn which probably proves that you're exactly right and it's there. You know, boy, this is where I lose everybody. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a liberal arts major, you know, college-educated, you know, English lit guy, right? I wrote novels before I started writing comics. Still write novels. And, you know, I, I think, and, and there are two genres that I have been drawn to, right? I've been drawn to sort of crime-slash-espionage. And I've been drawn to, for lack of a better phrase, sort of uh, near sci-fi, right, type stuff. And both of those genres, I think, speak to, look, you can, all, all art has meaning. All right. You can dress it up as just pure, empty entertainment. But what you say in it matters. So, you know what? If you're watching Full House... The presence of of people of color or the absence of them in that story matters. All right, you are you are saying something about that world. It may not be intentional. It may not be overt. It may not be conscious. Right? It, because the the defense is always it's entertainment. Batman shouldn't be about social commentary. Okay, but the thing is, the second you create a piece of art and you put it into the world, you are creating something that is there to be interpreted. Right? It's going to be interpreted. And the creator has to own that interpretation as best they can. You can't own it entirely. 
I can never and nor would I want to control what people can read into my work, but I can sure as hell put in my work the things that I think are matter, matter to me. Okay. So with that in mind, right, that this is that entertainment, whether it wants to be or not, is art and art is a reflection of our world. Now we're talking about these specific stories that are almost always stories about what in some way they're a reflection of what's wrong in our world. Right? The mystery, there's an argument that says that that the the crime story is a story about the chaos of the universe and the need to impose some sense of order upon it. All right. There are studies you can read that say, hey, when we are in times of like social crisis or national crisis, we see certain genres rise and others fall. All right. We saw a big resurgence in horror prior to 9 11. All right. Things were actually pretty good. People were pretty happy. So the fantasy changed what we were looking for. Right now, we're all living in a world that's pretty screwed up. Yeah. It's, it's, it's about as bad as it's been in the last 50, 60 years. All right. We had San Bernardino this last week, and that's horrifying, and it's so senseless. We had Paris. We had Beirut. Right. Mm-hmm. We have, you know, just mass insanity. The society is so dysfunctional right now. There is so much fear and so much distrust and so much anger. And so much frustration. There was a poll, I think, last week that said, and I love this, right? Like there was like a, a poll of American voters and something like 19%, you know, uh, only 19% said they trusted the government or something like that. And the majority of the respondents who said that they didn't trust the government at all were people who identified as Republicans, wow. right? Well, gosh, what do you think is going to happen in, 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 in Washington with that? When you get, say, you know, a Congress that's Republican controlled by a bunch of people who don't believe in government, right? (laughs) Gosh, it's a wonder we're not getting anything done. Yeah, right. So you look at dystopian fiction in particular, and one of the reasons we've seen a huge rise in it is that I think there have been some creators who go, hey, that's a bandwagon I want to jump on. (laughs) I think there are other creators who have found themselves going there simply because that's where they find the easiest place to explore the issues that they're dealing with i'm genuinely look i i I, religious extremism is a huge issue it bothers me absolutely you know i look at it as a source of a whole bunch of you know the tragedies of this world but you know what the end of the day if you pin me down i'm going to say this all comes back to money it's all about money right and that's what that dystopia is for me and we live in it we live in it you know, there there are less than, I believe, 50 individuals, that's 50 people, who now control 99% of the global wealth. 50 people. And that's insane. Yeah. That's insane. You know, the, the, the there is an argument that says that three things are required for revolution, right? That, you know, you have to have a disenfranchised other, that uh, there has to be a denial of the sense that the government is listening, that, that, that there's no representation, and you have to be hungry. Oh. If you're hungry, then what the hell are you, you know, what are you worried about dying for? It's far better to get a bullet in the head than to die slowly starving to death, right? right? Mm-hmm. And if you look, we've got two. And the only reason we don't have three is because the food that is provided for us is almost universally cheap 
plentiful and bad for us. Yeah. Right. McDonald's. You got it. But you can, you can, you know, 99 cents will feed you. <laughs> 99 cents will feed you. So we well, can do it. And this is why, incidentally, where's high, where do we see the highest rates of obesity? The poor. Because they can't afford to eat well. Yep. That's crazy. It is. And if that fractures, I guarantee if that fractures, the whole thing's going to come down. You know, but when you have multi-billionaires now talking about the fact that they, when multi-billionaires turn around and go like, hey, this economic system is screwed up <laughs> simply because there's going to be nobody left to buy our stuff, right? When it becomes entirely about their own self-interest, you know you've reached a tipping point. So I don't actually feel, you know, this is, this is, this is the depressing part of talking to Greg. I don't think we're that far from a Lazarus world. Oh, absolutely. I think you, you, you can make an argument that we're already living in it. We just haven't, it's just not as overt. See, and that's the thing about dystopian fiction is I feel like nowadays dystopian fiction is becoming closer and closer to nonfiction. We're, like you said, we're already there in a lot of cases or we're on a very, very thin line dividing uh, reality from fiction. Sean, you had a question? Uh, well, just to kind of comment on that really briefly and then get to the question, in the back matter of Lazarus, you often provide us with looks into not just the science and technology behind the story and things that you find interesting in those realms, but the sociopolitical uh, oh, things yeah. that are taking place today in the world that relate to your story. And I can't remember what issue it was, but you did comment in the back matter about how close it felt to the world that Lazarus is and how scary that is. And I think when it comes to the science of it, it's all about the application. So in Lazarus, we're getting to see the application of this science in a way that's you know not benefiting the whole of society. But I think in the world, there is an opportunity to really change lives for the better. And it's all about the people and what we decide to do with it. Yeah. And I think one of the decisions that I made, it goes back to the world building issue, is when I started chasing down the, here's the economic, you know, apocalypse scenario, the next thing I got was that th that isn't actually the end of progress or technology. What happens then mm. is that technology becomes held only by the people who can afford it and right. the people who can fund it. So that, and that's the biggest difference, say, between where we are now and, oh, the French Revolution, right? Because the ability to mobilize now and to actively fight back and to create change is incredibly curtailed ironically by the same technologies that have allowed us to become so aware of what's happening around the world at any given moment absolutely but if you you know if you think that the U, you know the u.s can't shut down the internet you're out of your mind yeah <laughs> yeah i mean you're just you're just being willfully naive if you think that that cell tower won't go down with the flick of a switch you're dumb you know, all of our supercomputers we're carrying in our pocket become nothing but bricks yeah, uh, and not very effective ones. <laughs> no. Because you're not even going to be able to kill, kill a rodent <laughs> if you hit it with a Well, if you, you know, can throw it very hard, you can kill a squirrel. I don't know. Yeah, some okay, cell phone yeah. accuracy. <laughs> don't miss. So, <laughs> and then and then to the other thing, I was, you know, Michael is fond of saying when we started Lazarus, it was it was it was science fiction. And now it feels like it's a documentary. Yep. Yeah. You know? <laughs> it's like there are elements of it. Yeah. Well, so Lazarus is one of is one of the comics that I feel is really touching on this, and Invisible Republic is another one uh, yeah, by Karina yeah. Becco and Gabriel Hardman that I'm a big fan of. Do you feel that these sorts of stories are important to tell, not only in the wider uh, fiction but in comic books? You mean for the medium? Yeah, it just I'm not sure. I I, I get leery of of 
of assuming that anything I'm doing in comics is necessary for comics. You know, <laughs> I think right. comics are, are much bigger and more powerful than I will ever be. I think just as an art form, as a medium, what there's a magic to them. And, and those of us who love them understand it, even if we can't articulate what it is about this weird sort of potion and alchemy that happens between the image and the word and, and that kind of storytelling. And it is a very unique form. It's just, I think that, you know, I, I write in different mediums. I write novels and I write short stories and I've written screenplays and comics allow for certain tools. And I think one of the great things that comics do is they allow for the immediacy of a vision. Yeah. Right. That that you can you can take that future and show it. This is what it looks like in a way that you can absolutely do in prose, but takes many, many pages and arguably may not be as effective. Right. You know, the, the argument that the you know, an image is worth a thousand words is is I mean, nowhere is it truer than in comics. So. Absolutely. <laughs> And I think for that reason, certainly uh, stories like like Lazarus, like Invisible Republic are, you know, they're, they're perfect for the medium. They fit the medium very well. I think, you know, we'll see, hopefully knock on wood, that Lazarus may well translate well to television or something like that. Right. Should, oh. we get, sh sh should we get there? I think, we'll, I think we can translate it. But I think that translation the success of that translation is going to be driven by frankly the the roadmap is laid out primarily by michael and right. the visual style of the books so and speaking of speaking of all of that this book lazarus reminds me a lot of the wire in the sense that you couldn't really tell this story without the imagery i think that some of the quieter moments that we get with lazarus where you kind of pull back and let michael tell the story yeah you, you couldn't have that in a, in a novel it wouldn't work and um, i think that's that's some of the best parts of this book i i don't disagree at all and i would i would take it further uh, i i think michael tells the story i don't oh. think i do i think uh but uh, I, but i would say the same thing frankly about justin greenwood on on Stumptown. Right. I would say the same thing about Nicola uh, on, on Black Magic. I am entirely at the mercy of the collaborators <laughs> I work with. True. And I'm very fortunate that I'm working with extraordinarily talented collaborators. And for the majority of my career, have had that opportunity. You know, I can go all the way back to Steve Lieber. I can talk about you know J.H. Williams. Yeah. There's a long list of these guys and gals. You know, this is, as I said before, it's a visual medium. Michael is, I think Michael and I are very well suited to each other, perhaps more than almost anybody I've ever worked with, in that Michael is comfortable with the kind of subtleties that I want to uh, see portrayed in, in the action, in the acting. Right. He can capture an expression perfectly and capture the moment perfectly. And when he does that, then there's no need for a character to say, aw, rats, you know, I mean, you, right. you, you see it, you know what heartbreak looks like and Michael puts it on the page perfectly. I think it's an extraordinary talent. Uh, like I say, you know, he and I talk quite a lot, uh, about, you know, the book as we work on it and, and he will fight me, you know, if you think something is wrong or he thinks something isn't working, he'll ask and he'll question it and he'll push. He makes mm -hmm. me test everything, which is exactly what he should do. And then at the end of the day, invariably, you know, he makes the best decision to tell the story. Uh, my scripts are very rarely, I want 
this angle or this kind of shot or whatnot. I give him, this is the movement of the issue. This is the movement of the action page to page or panel to panel. But I leave it entirely to him to determine the best way to show those things. And in point of fact, if I've missed something or if something isn't clear, and he busts his hump every month on it. So Now, here's a question uh, about the difference in the art between uh, Lazarus and Black Magic. Black yeah. Magic uses color in an extremely different way from the way that Lazarus does, uh, obviously yes. with you know Black Magic being mostly in black and white. Now, is that uh, a decision that was conscious on your part, or was that more the input of the art department uh, working on that title? No, that was Nicola. For Black Magic, that was Nicola. I had never imagined the book as... I don't want to say black and white, but I'll say as muted as it is. And when she and I started really working on it and she basically I had two scripts and she'd read them and said, all right, I'm going to go off. I'm going to try some things. I want to do some different things. And I was like, well, okay. You know, not knowing what they were. And she comes back in six weeks, you know, with character designs and this art style with these beautiful watercolor ink washes, mm -hmm. this, the, you know, where she's using, rarely is she actually using an absolute black. She's mostly staying in grays. Mm -hmm. Right. And then coming and saying, so, you know, this is what I'm thinking for color. And this is, this is where and how I want to use color. And I was like, well, that's freaking brilliant. Let's do that. <laughs> yeah, it works really, <laughs> you know, really I mean, well. On exactly. I mean, the second she put it out there, I was like, well, let's turn into that. And that then becomes an element of the storytelling. And it becomes something that I now actively write towards. Where are the moments of color? Because color, you know, in Lazarus, the palette absolutely matters. What Santi Arcas does, and I think what he does beautifully, you know, to realize the world, it's very effective. It's a very muted world in a lot of yeah. ways that there isn't a lot that's bright and glossy. Mm -hmm. And when you are in places that are bright and glossy, you know you're in a place of wealth right. and you're in a place of privilege. With black magic, the use of magic is entirely related to color. Yeah. And, oh. and as the series progresses, you're going to see that there are actually specific palettes we use depending on whose spell it is. Wow. You said yeah. the use of color is magic. In this issue two, his arm is in color. Yes. Oh my god, that's magic. <laughs> <laughs> Light bulb. <laughs> it's, it's significant. Yes. There's a reason that she's so obsessed about it when she's talking about it. Oh, now it's clear. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. There's there's a reason why we popped it there. Nice. Uh, and you see, it gets there. Are, I think two separate instances of of color in three. Again, very clearly related. I think there's a bit in four, and then there's a, whoa, there's a, there's a, it's, it's practically the fireworks show at Disneyland in five. Ooh, um, so yeah, oh. yeah. So, it gets hopping. <laughs> so the, the piece that really stuck out to me the most so far with, with Black Magic was, was in issue one. Uh, when, when Rowan is standing there in her underwear and she's <laughs> facing down this unnamed man and she looks, she's totally defiant and she looks badass and she's not being sexualized beyond her raw beauty at all. And it's a, it's just a really amazing moment. And for me, I, that's all I need. You know, that's all I needed to see for the book to be sold. At oh, least that's to fantastic. Me. So Great. What do you think it is that keeps you coming back to these sort of strong female characters? I'm comfortable with them. I like them. I think at some point, probably in the late 90s, actually, I know exactly when it was. When I was in graduate school, I had written a, a one-act play that was a female lead. And that was the first time I really was trying to write a female lead. And it was a little clumsy. It was a little ham handed. The first time. And, yeah. And then, um, 
my fourth novel is called Shooting at Midnight, and I knew when I was going to write that one that I wanted to split the point of view, and that the point of view of the, of the majority of the book was going to be from this character, uh, Bridget Logan. And at that point, I I took it very, very seriously. I was like, well, I, I don't know how to write first person from you know a woman's point of view, and I've, this has to be authentic. If it's not believable, it's not going to work. Right. And I, I mean, for lack of a better way to put it this is going to sound horrible but i don't i don't have a another way to put it you know i'm look i'm i'm a middle class white guy and my middle class white guy experience is the experience that i live with so that my uh, my ability to empathize and imagine other experience is is part of my job as a writer right. but in that you know i'm obligated to do a certain amount of research so when i sat down to write bridget i actually did a lot of research and that research was mostly sitting down with women i knew who were friends who i trusted and who trusted me and really asked them you know here, here's the situation this is what i'm thinking what do you think you know what is reasonable what are the concerns here what are the things that i'm not thinking about when i'm in this woman's head and it's a really basic thing because it makes it, you know, when, when I talk about it like that, it makes it sound like, well, Greg was trying to write point of view of a turtle or something. <laughs> and that's not it. I don't mean to make it sound like other, but I sure as hell didn't want to write a guy with tits. Right. You know, the fact that Bridget was a woman is part of who she is as much as the fact that she's Irish Catholic is who she is, that she grew up in the Bronx is who she is, you know, that she's a recovering heroin addict. All of those things are part of who she is. In the same way that you look at Kate Kane and the fact that she's queer is only part of who she is. It's not all that she is. Yeah. But it is an integral part. It matters. And it matters on a fundamental level so that it's not one that you hang a sign off of, but at the same time, you don't ignore it. And I think... Putting myself through that process, which was kind of a process of really overcomplicating it to ultimately simplify it, made it something that I was much more comfortable doing. So there, there's that part of it. There is um, sort of a cheater element to it, which is most of this media has been driven by male protagonists. And when you flip the gender of your protagonist, you flip all sorts of tropes. A bunch of cliches get broken, and a lot of those cliches get inverted, and you get just incredible dramatic dividend out of it. There's a lot of fun to be had. So there's that. And then there's the fact that, you know, look, I, uh, I, I've always, you know, I've always viewed myself as a feminist. I grew up around, quote unquote, strong women. There was never really uh, an option to not, you know, and these are the women that, I, you know, these are the women I know. These are the women that, that I'm lucky enough to call friends. So I think at this point, in the main, honestly, I'm kind of more comfortable writing women. Um, I know how to write guys. I am a guy. You know, I guy all the time. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and every now and then I write guy and I go, okay, he's guy. And I think maybe part of that is that most of my guys are so, so tied to me in some way or another. And that's not to say that Rowan isn't, that forever isn't. but I do feel that when I'm writing women, 
as my main characters, as my protagonists, I feel like I'm having to stretch more. I feel like I'm working. I'm having to work harder. I can understand that. I I feel like uh, writing and acting are kind of closely tied in that respect when it comes to creating characters and choosing aspects of yourself to insert into the these different characters that you've created. So I can definitely understand how uh, the desire to challenge yourself and stretch yourself and you know the even the fun and experience of really uh, being something completely other while you're writing that other character uh, other than what you are normally uh, used to experiencing sounds uh, very much like uh, a lot more fun than writing something you're incredibly familiar with because you live it every day. <laughs> yeah. And I think, you know, I mean, you read something like the the Jad Bell novels, you read Alpha and Bravo, and clearly, you know, I'm not a Delta Force trained, you know, super soldier or whatnot. But a lot of what moves Jad as a protagonist are things that are very, you know, they're very close to me. You know, he's got his issues of family, you know, his relationship with his with his daughter, things like that. And those are very tight to me. And so the, I see a lot of myself in Jad. I have a harder time seeing myself in Rowan. Now, I know there are pieces of me in Rowan. There's no question, right? I don't think it's possible for, uh, in the same way that an actor is not going to be able to say, you know, there's no part of me in this role. You know, the, I, I infect Rowan, no matter how much I may wish not to. <laughs> but in a way, I think it's also oddly more freeing, you know, that I can I can take Rowan to places that at this point, I'm not sure that I, I, I'm quite oddly quite as willing to take my male characters, uh, which is uh, if you had asked me that 15 years ago, I, I would have answered precisely in the opposite, you know, okay. that I would put. Atticus through things in the Kodiak novels that I would never have been willing to, you know, put Natalie through or Bridget through in those same books. So that's an interesting growth. Yeah. You know, but I, I look, the simple answer is women are cool. I, like <laughs> I think we can all agree to that. Yeah. You know, I like them. They're awesome. Yeah. Disagreement. That I like that you uh, mentioned family there because family is another one of those themes that I picked up on a lot. Obviously, in Lazarus, families play a big part. In No Man's Land, you've got the different crime families. In uh, Death and the Maidens, you've got uh, the whole Ra's al Ghul, Nissa al Ghul, Talia al Ghul dynamic going on there. Yeah. So, could you speak a little bit as to you know the importance of family in your own life and why that occurs so often in your writing? Again, man, you've just you did homework uh, and are and are and are asking really good questions. Well, thank um, you. Okay, well, first of all, I'm 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 fortunate. You know, my parents remained married throughout. The, you know, my father's life. My my dad passed away last summer, Sorry so I grew that. up in a very stable household. You know that there's there, I have the benefit of that. A lot of people don't. I had the benefit of really all my needs were met. You know, uh, like I said, uh, yeah, I'm a white middle class guy. Hardship for me was getting, you know, picked on at school, and, you know, and, and occasionally beaten up and things like that. It wasn't, oh my God, uh, the soldiers may come and rape my mom today, or they may, you know, conscript me to serve in their army, or the house may get blown up, or I may get shot running across the street to get bread by a sniper. I didn't have any of those things. That said, my older sister has Down syndrome three years older than me. Uh, I've got a younger brother who's six years younger. So, you know, the, the, and, and then on top of that, like all families, there were our dysfunctions. Our, our, our extended family was fairly distant. My mom's parents, frankly, were kind of emotionally messed up. Her mom, uh, was very, very 
I don't want to say cold, but she was closed and scared. She was a woman who lived her whole life scared. And she kind of infected her children with that fear. Um, something that my father spent over 50 years of marriage trying to, you know, break. And it's hard to break the stuff that your parents give you. And I look at myself as a father. My son's 15. He's going to be 16 in January. Holy crap. That's, <laughs> that's not far away. My daughter is 12. She'll be 13 in May. My wife and I have been married almost 25 years now. Wow. Um, yeah, we married young and we've made it work. So, you know, in the same way that the answer to the question, you know, as to, you know, how do you write women or, or why women or how do you get to that point? It's part of the DNA, our upbringing. All of this goes back to, I think, a core question that comes up in all of my work over and over again, even when I don't want to write about it, which is nature versus nurture, right? What is your nature versus what is your nurture? And your family is your nurture as much as they are the bestowers of your nature. You get your genetics from them. Your predispositions come from your parents, right? But what your parents then mold out of that raw material that you know shows up wet and sobbing you know, with, you know, with the umbilical still attached is, you know, that's the story of our lives. That's who we are, how they teach us, what they give us, how they love us, if they love us, the values they instill in us. You know, these are core. I'll tell you one of my favorite parental moments that I've ever written is in uh, the Batwoman stuff with Jim. And it's the moment when Kate shows up and, 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 and Jake, her father, is working on, like, the Mustang in the garage. And he says, what are you doing here? You know, you're not, you're not on leave. You, know, you, you, don't, you, don't have, you don't have an away from West Point. And Kate says, um, you know, I've been separated from the Army. And he says, what happened? And she cites, you know, I, you know this, is the, this is the reason. And he says, that's homosexual conduct. And she says, uh, I couldn't tell them what they needed to hear. And there's a beat. And then Jake says, then you kept your honor intact, and I'm proud of you. Mm. You know, that that's the daughter he's raised. Even the tragedy of their shared tragedy of losing their mother, you know, his wife, and arguably Beth, you know, the sister. He's raised this young woman who, when put on the carpet, you know, and told, if you say to me, you're not gay, you can stay and be a soldier. And who in that moment says, you know, a cadet shall not lie, cheat, or steal, nor suffer others to do so. I'm sorry, sir. I'm gay. I can't. I'm gay. I'm not going to say it. I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to lie. And then her father's response is, oh, you're gay. That's not the important thing to him. The important thing in that moment is you're a good person, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so we're, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to cut this segment and we're going to come back and we're going to continue the conversation with Greg Rucka. Awesome. All right. So we're back. And I think Kevin is going to start us off with a question from Mr. Yeah, Rucka. So I have one it. question, basically. Uh, in Lazarus, forever is so strong. She's a strong woman. So I'm going to go with like a contrast. What's her weakness? Oh, <laughs> well, uh, you're talking about weakness of character. You're talking about weakness. Uh, you, can, of... you can have weaknesses of like physical weakness or character or well, personality. She can have some weakness. Yeah, I think hmm, there are a couple. I think she's deeply flawed. I mean, obviously, and you see it in Poison, right? You know, she is very vulnerable. She she exists at the whim of her family. Yep. And and she has really just discovered that. You know, she stopped taking. 
the medications that she's been given. The reason she stopped taking them is because, you know, Jonah told her, you know, that's the stuff that makes you love us, right? You don't, Mm. they, they, they literally chemically control her that way. So she's like, yeah, well, you know what? I'm going to stop taking it. Except the side effect of that is that it also impaired her abilities. Yep. Right. She, she went down and she didn't get up and you'll see at the end of 21, there's, there's, there's a, a, a ripple effect to that. Oh, right? so there's, there's quite literally, right. So there, there's that physical weakness. I think, you know, she's naive. A lot of what the story is about is her awakening to the world and mm-hmm. the reality of the world, as opposed to the world that she's been, that, that she has been shown. They're two different things. So there's that. And that naivete extends, you know, she, she is naive in almost every human way, except in the ways that she is designed to serve, right? She knows how to infiltrate the bunker. She knows how to assassinate the, the, you know, the individual. She can fight, she can kill, she can stab, she can rewire the bomb, she can program the computer, she can do all that. Mm -hmm. But if you ask her to put on an evening gown, she doesn't know how to put it on. Right. And that extends to and I think as a result of that, she's a little too trusting. And I'm, you know, I'm a guy who believes in trust. I want to be able to trust people. Forever may be one of the first characters I've written where the trust she places is going to be misplaced at mm-hmm. times, at times. So, you know, I'm not sure. Is that an answer? Is that a fair answer? That's a good answer. Okay, good. All right. I like that one. Uh, Yay. Greg, so I got a question for you. I know um, hearing you talk about Forever, you've spent a huge amount of time developing forever and as much as time developing Rowan. I know you've recently done a Star Wars miniseries as well as a Dragon Age miniseries. Uh, is there any approach, different approaches to how you develop characters in a creative own project versus how you do maybe a licensed miniseries? When there are characters that I'm creating uh, for creator-owned work, and specifically for the two franchises you're talking about, I am always aware that the character is not going to be mine. So I can say, well, mm. here are these two characters in Shattered Empire. Here's Shara and here's uh, Cass. But Lucasfilm has to look at them and say, okay, that'll work, oh. right? And if Lucasfilm says, yeah, we got a problem with this, then you know the nature of the job is to say, okay, then how do I fix it? Same thing you know, with Dragon Age. This is a Bioware property. So they can say, here you go, you know, we'd like you to do this thing. And we have this idea for this guy, uh, but we don't know anything else about him. And I can say, okay, well, his name is Marius. and This is what I've come up with. And they have every right to turn around and say, that doesn't work for, for this guy because we're doing this thing over here. Or that doesn't work for this guy because it's in violation of rules we've set for the world or whatnot. But having said that, I don't feel... If, if there's, I don't feel that I, I give them any less care or, or commitment as a result of that. It's just, yeah. it's just being cognizant of sort of my place in, in, in that order, you know, that, mm-hmm. you, know, they, they, you get invited to play in, in the Star Wars universe, you know, don't be surprised when they say, no, you can't have, you know, you can't have Chewbacca, you know, eating Ewoks for supper. <laughs> you can't get nice. upset. Yeah, well, but you can't, you know, you can't throw a fit and say, well, fine, I'm out of here. That was my brilliant Ewok eating story. How could you do that to me? <laughs> the alternate you ending know? of the holiday special. Well, <laughs> because their, their response is being like, it's not your character, jackass. You know, <laughs> it's not your universe. Yeah. And, 
and I think, you know, that certainly extends when you're working for places like Marvel and DC. You know, I, I get a little annoyed when I see creators going, I had this great Superman story and they wouldn't let me do it. It's like, yeah, I understand. But it was their right. And their reasons for not letting you do it may have been stupid, but you agreed. You went in with right. your eyes wide open. Superman wasn't yours. And you and knew that when you said you'd do it. So Is that why so many such as you are turning more into for to image comics? Because they can freely create what they want. Yes. I think in I think frankly that's the core reason. And I think I think that comes out of some other things that we've seen shift. I've talked about this elsewhere, but you know, the last last eight, ten years we've seen both Marvel and DC become Disney and Warner Brothers in ways that they never had been before. And that has put incredible limits on what creators can do. It's put extraordinary handcuffs on many of us. Wow. So, and then you take that and you add to that and you don't own it. At the end of the day, you don't own it. It's not yours. You don't get to, you know, so you, one, you may not be able to tell the stories you want to tell. Two, even if you do tell the stories at the end of the day, your reward for doing so, you know, every now and then, you know, Scott Snyder's making plenty of money right now. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, 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 and I don't, and, and this is not a criticism, right? I'm not begrudging him a dime of it. Right. But that's Scott Snyder. There are a lot of other writers at DC who aren't making anywhere near as much. You know what I mean? And the effort to reward is not in many cases commensurate and more to the point once you're done you're done it's over if you look at dc right now i have they've taken almost everything i've ever written for them and i was there for almost 10 years yeah, uh, yeah. over 10 years actually they've taken almost everything i've written out of print so what? i don't get royalties there are no royalties now now they're putting out a gotham central omnibus that they're going to charge what 120 bucks for yeah all right, so I'm going to see big royalties on that. How many people are going to buy that? I am. And those, I those, am. <laughs> well, you did. Thank you. But it's see, books that size are unreadable. That's a book that you put on your shelf and say, that's all of Gotham Central. Isn't it pretty? <laughs> and then somebody says, can I read it? And you say, well, good luck. But you're halfway through, you're not going to be able to read half the pages because of the binding. You know what I mean? Right. They're not. They're not designed to be read. They're designed to be used as weapons. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, so, once the cell phones don't work anymore, right. you need exactly. something. Exactly. That's exactly it. Oh, yeah, cell phone fails. <laughs> <laughs> that would kill the squirrel. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure you'd be able to throw it well, but man, if you dropped it, that would be the end of move. the squirrel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's the perfect it's like, trap. It's like spear fishing, except with these heavy, heavy tongues. <laughs> I love it. So, I, you know, and, and, Look, again, DC's right. But, you know, one of the things, I, I'll give you an example. I did Wonder Woman the Hikatea with J.G. Jones, right? That book has been out of print for years. It's just not there. You cannot get it. If you can find it on eBay, it's going for like 200, 300 bucks in hardcover. Wow. Yeah, it's ridiculous because DC won't reprint it. Why won't they reprint it? I suspect they won't reprint it because they really don't like the cover that has Wonder Woman's boot on Batman's head. Really? I, yeah. I suspect somebody there says we can't portray Batman like that. What gives you that impression that that's the reason? I None other than I think that they know that the jewel in their crown is Batman. Right. Yeah, yeah. And I have 
many years on working on Batman, seen them make some really, really strange decisions based on what they think is protecting the character and the integrity of the character, right? I could be totally wrong, right? So I'm not, as much as in, in my darker moments, I would like to go, they're being petty and they took all my stuff out of print. They're taking it out of print because they don't think it's worthwhile or it doesn't fit with their plan, that there isn't money to be made on it. But that being said, right, all those years I put in aren't paying me for anything. Right. Lazarus, Black Magic, Green and Country, Whiteout, Stumptown, these are things that we own that will perpetual, you know, they'll perpetuate. I'm not going to guarantee mm -hmm. that Lazarus will be in print forever, but I know that when the royalties come in on Lazarus, you know what? Michael gets a nice check and I get a nice check and Troutman gets a check and Santi gets a check. You know, I mean, we go down the line. Jody gets a check. Tyler gets a check. Owen gets a check. Everybody involved gets a piece of that. And they get, I think, a very fair piece, you know, and, and on Black Magic, when we start seeing royalties on that, those royalties go to everybody involved, including our editor. You know, Janine Schaefer, who's editing the book, is a freelance editor. She gets a share of the royalties. Nice. And that matters to me. And like I say, you know, so I'm 40, I just turned 46. And there was sort of a moment where I was like, yeah, everybody's got a shelf life at the big two. Yeah. You know, and I think one of the biggest mistakes in my career was I stayed at DC for too long. You know, I stayed too long and I paid for it. They took, they took me for granted. And as a result of that, you know, I, my career suffered. So well, I do think I do think you see more and more and, and the problem, the flip side is that it's established creators, people who have made their bones on right. big titles at big publishers who are able to make the jump more easily than people who are trying to break in. Yeah. So. so, I mean, I think that even though you're saying that you stayed at DC too long, your career right now, I mean, you've got so many great projects going and i mean we're talking about lazarus and black magic here but there's also stumptown that's really great and and star wars shattered empire which just wrapped up i had a question about that and i think it ties into everything we're talking about here i know that there was probably a lot of you know tightening of the reins as far as what you could and couldn't do with that title but do you feel that you ultimately got to say what you wanted to say with the story you were telling there it's it's interesting because when when i was first asked about doing shattered empire i put in a proposal that was very different and the proposal was approved that was very different from the book that we actually ultimately did because i had done a proposal that was actually spinning out of um characters from the uh from the smugglers run book that i had done which was this Han Solo chewbacca adventure right that had been published in prose and then they had star wars celebration in may and they had that beautiful Phil Noto piece that was the cover to issue one. Yeah. And I looked at that and I went through the roof. I was like, oh my God, I mean, everybody's on that. <laughs> and I called up the guy I was working with at Lucasfilm and I said, I can't, I got, I can't. If that's on the cover and those characters don't appear, I'm going to get murdered. Right. I'm going to get murdered dead. <laughs> you know, I mean, they, they will kill me in the face. <laughs> Let me come up with something else. And they said, well, okay, but, you know, it's running hot. All right. And I was like, yeah. So I wrote a new proposal. And I sent it in. And they said, okay, go ahead. So uh, the, the biggest regrets I have about it are that it was only four issues. I right. would love to have had five. That I had to put together this alternate proposal very quickly. And as a result, it's really a series of vignettes that tie together a thematic story, right? Shara and Kessa's story. 
I think it works. But, I mean, man, you know, I, I would have loved to have had more time and been able to do more with it. Of all the issues in it, issue two was the one that we hit the most static over. And it was simply for a plot device reason. Because when you're doing stuff, right, at that level, it has to be submitted and then Lucasfilm has to approve it. And invariably, you will wander into territory that they are exploring elsewhere. Right. And apparently, I kept writing stuff and sending it to them, and they would be like, we're doing this in eight. You know, <laughs> we're, we're doing this in nine. You can't do this. You can't do that. Wow. And I kept having to rewrite on the basis of them. being like, okay, well, what about this? And they'd go, yeah, yeah, that's great. Oh, no, wait. You know, Ryan just did a revision of the script. And, and it's like, oh, Christ. Okay. So that was the biggest, that was the biggest sort of frustration with it. But again, it goes back to what I was saying earlier. You know, you don't, you don't get the bitch about them not letting you do the Superman story you wanted to tell. It's their characters. And one of the things they're paying you for is, you know, is, is their right to say, no, you can't do that. We need you to do something else instead. And then as a professional, your job is to turn around and deliver it as quickly as possible. There's a counter to that, which is, you know, after the third or fourth time they do that to you, I feel that as a creator, you're well within your right to say, okay, then you guys need to pay me again. Yeah. Because, you know, this is a lot of hours I've put in. In any other industry, rewrites like that would trigger additional payments. And in comics, they don't. And that is that is that can be a little frustrating. But man, like I said, you know, I, this is not the bitch. I got to write Star Wars. Yeah, I, I, I so, literally got to write stuff that had Luke with a lightsaber. Yes. I mean, oh my god, yes. how cool was that? You know. So. <laughs> I thought that that miniseries was absolutely incredible, and uh, oh, I, I really hope that uh, Shara and Kess do get used at some point again, even if it's not by you. Which I would love to see. That I would love to see a miniseries that follows them again. But uh, those were great additions to the Star Wars universe. Well, you know, I've got a, um, there's one more Star Wars book that I've done that comes out on the 18th. Uh, it's another one of the middle reader books. It's called Before the Awakening. And it's uh, three stories, one about Poe, one about Finn, one about Rey. Oh. And so getting to write Poe as an adult after having written Shattered Empire, there are some callbacks there that are for people who will have read both or will have read Shattered Empire and then they pick up Before the Awakening. There's some neat stuff there, I think, for them. And I'm really, it's funny, I was talking to Michael Seglane, uh, who's sort of the head of Lucasfilm Publishing, the uh, day before yesterday, about, you know, wanting to do some more stuff. He had called and, and with, a, with a job offer. And I was like, I am interested. Let us talk more. And, uh, and, we, and, and I had said, you know, I mean, there's, there's a lot of stuff. It's 30 years between the end of Jedi and the force awakens. Right. There's a lot of time to do stuff with Shara and Cass. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm just saying there's more <laughs> to be done there. It was like, all right, well, let's talk about it. I was like, okay, so I'm with you. I, I would love to get back in there. Awesome. That's really exciting. Uh, I, I do want to take this conversation back a little bit about family because I thought that that angle was really interesting. And it, it, you, you talking about that made me think about a comment that you made in an interview that I saw when I was doing a little bit of research in that you were saying, and it was in relation to black magic, you were talking about mm -hmm. manipulation. And mm -hmm. the power of will and the degree to which we're all willing to kind of accept manipulation in certain circumstances, but vehemently rejected in others. Uh, it's a prevalent theme in Lazarus, too, because forever is manipulated by her family all the time. And yeah. they use the fact that she believes that they share a bloodline to make her do their bidding. Yeah. And when you were saying that you're kind of 
nurtured by your family to be, you know, you, you learn certain things and you become a certain person based on the family or the environment you grew up in. We're, we're manipulated in that sense from birth. Yes. And so yeah. to what degree is any human truly autonomous and free from this manipulation? Well, and again, that and that that presumes that manipulation is inherently negative. Right. And we know it isn't. I mean, we obviously know it isn't. And and, uh, and the example I would give you is potty training, right? You know, we, we use, uh, you know, I've got a friend who's, you know, his son is about coming up on three, you know, and how did he get him to use the toilet? You know, here, here are Cheerios, pee on them. You know what I mean? It's, it's using the Cheerios as targets in the toilet sort of thing. That's a form of manipulation, right? That is, so, so you know, I used to, I remember... I remember a conversation I had with my dad. And I forget what brought it up, but I said something about it being manipulative. Something was manipulative. And he had said, that's not always a bad thing. And, you know, I, I gave it a fair amount of thought. And he's right. We see ourselves manipulated to very negative results. That tends to be the, the type of manipulation we must recognize. And we tend to recognize manipulation when after the fact. Right, we don't actually see it when it's happening. There goes back to the Lazarus and, and money issue. You know, we the the most powerful tool in the advertising arsenal is fear. Mm -hmm. There's a reason that in the election cycle we're in right now, it's fear driven. What are the Republicans? You know, because the reason that these primaries are getting the ratings they're getting is they're great entertainment. Why are they great entertainment? Because these guys are trying to outscare everybody. Right. Right. I mean, Trump is, you know, tossing down stuff that appeals to a fear base. All right. So and and we look at that and hope and we hope that most people can divorce themselves from it. Yeah. It's inter it's interesting that a lot of the time and I include myself in it, those of us who tend to think that we are most aware of manipulation tend to be the most susceptible to it, which is sort of an, its own irony. But we also, you know, I mean, we we. Like I said, it's not it's not always a pejorative. It's not always it's all, not always a negative. We 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 now use it as a negative. I don't want to be manipulated. I am my own man. You know, I I make up my own mind. But the point of fact is, no, you you really don't because you make up your mind through the things that you put into it. Right. If 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 you read, you know, if the Bible is the thing that you go to to guide your your morality, well, there there is a manipulation there. Yep. You know, if you read the autobiography of Malcolm X and that influences your political views, that that is a manipulation, you know, and to imply that Malcolm X did not on some level know that, you know, or more to the point that he did not write it with some sort of agenda is is fallacious. Yeah. It's, it's wrong. That doesn't make it bad. I mean, it doesn't make it wicked. Right. You know, we put the ideas out there because we want to discuss them. And a lot of times because we want people to agree with us. Yeah, you know, I think this whole conversation about you know manipulation within the family aspect and and the relationship with fear, I think uh, it, it reminds me a lot of the uh, Al Ghul's family relation dynamic in uh, Death and the Maidens. There's a lot of manipulation going on there, and and one scene in particular that ties in really well to the whole fear aspect are the uh, the Holocaust scenes in Death and the Maidens, which I mean you know not to gush or whatever, but I think that that's some of the uh, most intense use of 
of imagery in Batman comics that I've read, which like is probably more than a person should read. Um, <laughs> so like, I, I just thought that that was all very interesting. But I had a question about uh, Anissa Al Ghul, and uh, yeah. you know how how have you been uh, enjoying her representation on Arrow um, when she has appeared, and you know why uh, why don't we see more of her? Do you think? Well, I don't watch Arrow, so oh, I no. don't know how she's portrayed. I know that she's appeared. I have no idea if she bears any resemblance at all to the character that Klaus and I created or not. I mean, I really, I just, I don't know. There are some similarities, but but like in the comic books, though, I feel like we haven't really seen a whole lot of Nyssa. I was just wondering if you had any ideas why that might be. Oh, well, yeah, I, they didn't like her. My really? understanding was that she oh, actually no. got killed. But that may have been pre-New 52, that she got killed off pretty quickly. Somebody told me that Pete Tomasi had written a story where she was killed. I think it's interesting because that book, that project came along during during this era of, of changeover um, when Didio was coming in and, uh, and when Denny uh, O'Neill was leaving. And one of the things that Denny had wanted and that we had been working towards was trying to – we were trying to not retread – uh, a lot of stuff with Batman coming after No Man's Land. We wanted to sort of reinvigorate and 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 change some of the relationships. Uh, and one of the you know, and this was on every level. One of them was we didn't want Batman to be wandering around being a dick all the time. Yeah. <laughs> um, that there was a decision made that you know what, after a certain point, carrying around the oh my parents were murdered. Great impression of Batman. Well, <laughs> that's the internal scream, right? It's not like- <laughs> There's, here's the thing, you know, you, you hear this argument all the time with Batman. You don't hear it about Superman or, or Wonder Woman or whatnot. With Superman, with Wonder Woman, the argument's always, nobody with that much power would ever be that nice, right? That's the cynical argument. Yeah. They wouldn't do that. They would rob banks, you know, they would just, they'd be king of the world, right? And that, to me, is an argument that's always said more about the person who's making that argument right. than it says about the character. Yep. With Batman, though, he's, he's one of the only characters where he get this argument of, well, Batman's insane. He's crazy. I mean, he dresses up as a giant bat and he goes out at night. He beats people up. And, you know, he creates all this stuff. He's sick in the head. And the second, if you're going to go down that road, then you break him, right? Because one of the things that we accept in reading these is that these are heroes. So if he's crazy, he cannot be heroic, right? For him to be noble, he has to do what he's doing because he wants to. Mm-hmm. It's a choice he made. And one of the things that Denny and I talked about this a lot was that maybe it was time for Bruce to admit that he was Batman, not because he had to be, but because it was what he wanted to be. It was what he committed to. And part of Death and the Maidens was about that. Yeah, you definitely challenged that whole idea throughout the course of that book with him and his parents. Yeah, yeah this idea that Martha would be like, don't use this as the excuse anymore your grief is valid you know and 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 you suffered horribly and wanting to prevent your tragedy from ever befalling anybody else is noble but you don't you know don't make us the excuse don't make it into the tragedy be batman because that is the thing you are best at and and by the same token we had discussed sort of you know race in the way that the joker still to this day being overused kind of wanted to bring in a new new wrinkle there and so that that was part of the agenda with death and the maidens and then uh and then like i said you know denny left and 
and and the deal was in and there were you know there were some decisions and some of those decisions were no it's you know we want the miller darkness and you know dan wanted a dc universe that was much more akin to a marvel universe he wanted a lot of angst Mm -hmm. and that's a whole different discussion to get into you know (laughs) that that there's a whole different argument to, to chase with that validity it is ironic as hell to me however that now 15 you know 10 15 years later look at the movies and you know for all of the complexity you know that you may see in the marvel movies they're not dark movies right no nope. right. uh, but but superman man you know <laughs> it's, it's batman versus superman i mean it looks i don't think we've seen the sunshine in any of the trailers have we no you know, it's always <laughs> night or raining yeah. So it's like, and it is like, come on, guys, you know, relax. I think there's this weird sort of sense at Warner Brothers and with DC yeah. that they don't think anybody will take the characters seriously. So they have to be super serious all the time. And yeah, it's like, it looks like you know, they want to be like so much different from Marvel, which isn't necessarily I mean, like a good thing when you take it to an extreme. I think that they're, you know, Marvel's clearly doing something that works. So there's, you know, a lesson to be learned there in some way. I think that, I think it's a fundamental mistake to forget the roots of these characters. And one of the things that I think the Marvel movies do so beautifully is that they, they never forget the core of who these characters are. And I think the DC movies don't like the core of what these characters are in many cases. Um, Just look at the Jared Leto Joker. That's a very, very different uh, representation than anything I've seen before. Which, you know, I haven't actually seen the movie. I haven't seen his portrayal. It could be the greatest thing ever. But it's definitely a very shocking image the first time you see it compared to what you're used to. Right. And and one of the things I think Warner Brothers really wants is I think they feel that they're stable of characters are for kids so that they're working overtime mm. to say no no no, they're not they're not look look how serious it is look look how grown up and hip and trendy and <laughs> and, and grim and gritty and realistic it is right and you know I, they're mistaking that there are all sorts of conflations there that i think are dangerous the the implication that you know the implication that what what kids can enjoy grown-ups cannot is is flawed that serious must be gritty that realistic grants serious all of those i think are, are are flawed and i think they work very very hard now now i say this right going back to the nissa thing i haven't watched arrow i haven't watched flash i hear flash is terrific fun i hear that it's just delightful so clearly and i and my daughter has been watching supergirl right so clearly on on a television level they don't mind having fun mm. right but but with the movies they don't seem to want anybody to enjoy it i don't know so so i i do have one more question before we wrap up and i I mean we could do this all day to be honest um (laughs) yeah but uh i want to take it back to lazarus because ultimately we're here to talk about you and talk about your work and i want to talk about lazarus 19 because lazarus 19 is not only my favorite issue of the series but it's one of my favorite comic book issues period and I think that you and Michael really did some incredible work there. Wow. Michael, especially, the image, the imagery in that book is incredible. And the, the way he uses Forever's body, uh, it was very reminiscent of the uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer episode, The Body, where they kind yeah. of kept going back to that image of Joyce. I felt that I felt that very similar effect with Forever in that issue. So the question is, how much input or how much direction did you give Michael in that 
in that issue and how much of that was kind of his his own thing and and he kind of you know brought himself to the table there it's that's that's a harder question to answer than you might think because there is a point at which it, it isn't either of us. It's it's both of us, right. if, if that makes sense. Like, I, I'll write the script, right? And uh, and normally Michael and I will talk about it uh, while I'm working on it. And then he'll get it and we'll talk about it. And, you know, we'll exchange ideas about execution. And then I'll sort of get out of the way. And invariably I start getting emails from him as he's working where he says, oh, I'm thinking about this or I'm trying to figure out this. And, you know, we'll get on Skype and we'll, we, we spend a fair amount of time talking. And at a certain point, and this is one of the things, honestly, I love about comics. And the same thing's happening with Black Magic. The same thing happens with Stumptown. These, it becomes truly collaborative so that I no longer know how much of anything I gave him and how much of it was him going, no, I'm going to do this. I, I said you know, I, I said in the script, this is the motion of the story. And these are the ways that I want to sort of juxtapose it with issue four, with with the attack at the end of issue four and with forever, you know, just laying there and, and playing with that. But I can't claim anything really beyond that. You know, one of the, like I said, one of the great pleasures of working with Michael is I get out of his way. And he and I seem to have hit this strange sort of level where we understand what the other one is trying to do without <laughs> without saying so. And when we don't, you know, we call each other and say, what, what are we doing here? It's interesting. I, I very rarely if ever have an art uh, correction for him. Very rarely. I almost never, I think, you know, 21 issues, I think maybe twice. Wow. I've, I've said that that's, that's wrong. There was one in particular during the lift arc when you're looking at forever when, when her father's basically said, get your ass to Denver and make sure this thing doesn't happen. And she turns away from Johanna and there's this panel and she's got her arms around herself. And it's, and that was very deliberate because I said, no, it needs to be the exact same posture from the young forever bit where you saw her after after Marisol had administered the beating. Right. Uh, I wanted that same sense of needing to protect herself from injury. Like, that's really the only thing I can remember saying, no, 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 you know, let's, let's do this. <laughs> so, yeah, I, it's very hard for me to say. I'm inclined, I'm inclined with questions like this to say, mostly Michael. <laughs> mostly Michael, <laughs> you know. Okay. Say the same thing about Nicola. Probably all Nicola. <laughs> well. Definitely all Justin. You know, I mean, this is the way it works. You guys are doing incredible work, and um, I just want to thank you for all the great stuff you're putting out. And uh, you, you have a fan in me and the rest of us here at Comics. Absolutely. First. Well, yeah, it thanks. has been – thank you, guys. It's been a, a real pleasure talking. I do hope we get a, another opportunity to do so, or at least when I'm in New York, I get to meet you all. And yeah. And have absolutely. a beer or something. That'd be great. That'd be great. Yeah, for well, sure. That would be an I'm honor. in Montreal. That's going to be hard. So. <laughs> all right. Well, come to, we'll, come to New York. We'll bring we'll you down. There. Or we'll all meet in Montreal. Oh, like yeah. I haven't been there. Canada. I quite Montreal. like Montreal. Yeah. yeah. So that brings us to an end of this episode of the Comics First podcast. And as a reminder, you can find us on the web at comicsverse.com, on Facebook at facebook.com slash comicsverse, on Twitter at at comicsverse, on Tumblr at comicsverse.tumblr.com, and youtube.com slash comicsverse TV. And just so you guys know, we're revamping our YouTube content. There's a lot of great stuff coming down the pipe, and you should keep a lookout for it. You should see that on our YouTube page in just a few weeks, so stay tuned.